Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our faces or our Duran Duran t-shirts and accessories, you can catch this episode on video as well at our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so go check that out. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things, the Nick Rhodes to my John Taylor, John <laughs> Hughes. I get to be John Taylor, sorry. I don't get to be Simon. You can be any of, do you want to be Andy? Do you want to be Warren Cucurillo? I could, I could, I could share a drink with Andy. I would dig that. Uh, <laughs> Warren, you know, maybe mm, that's nineties. That's totally nineties. We're going off topic here. Obviously today we're going to be talking about Duran Duran and regular listeners of totally eighties are probably going, but John, but Lindsay, haven't you already done an episode on Duran Duran with Sam Hollander? Well, yes, we have. And we encourage you all to listen to that one, which is a more wide ranging conversation about their entire career. But today we are focusing on the perfect album, one of the greatest albums of the 80s, specifically Rio. And the reason for that is our special guest today is an award winning journalist, editor and critic whose profiles, interviews and criticism have appeared in publications like Rolling Stone, NPR Music, The Guardian, Salon, Billboard, Stereo, and the list goes on. AV Club, this is a very esteemed journalist. She wrote the liner notes for the 2016 deluxe edition of REM's Out of Time. She contributed an essay to the 2020 Game Theory comp compilation across the barrier of sound postscript. And most importantly, getting back to the topic at hand for fans of this show, her new book on Duran Duran's Rio for the 33 and a third book series was just out. It came out in May, 2021. And that is why she is here today. So we're ha happy without any further ado to welcome to Totally 80s, Annie Zaleski. Hey. Hello. Hey. hey, I'm holding your book right now. It's a beautiful color scheme. It feels good and solid in the hand. Congratulations. Congratulations on Gaden. Um, I know you were working on this for a very, very long time. I started doing interviews for this in 2019, but I've been thinking about doing this book since the mid 2000s. I've been bugging 33 and a third to let me write this since 2007 officially. And I finally had the right proposal and I finally wore them down and convinced them. Do you know you, what? A very good point, Lindsay. This book is hefty for a 33 and a third book. It's got some heft, it's got some soft. Well, you know, you can't just write a pamphlet on Rio. No. It's gotta have some heft. It's gotta have some page weight because it's gotta be on some fine milled paper because this record deserves the treatment. And thank you for your service and for doing the Lord's work, Annie. 
that you were so diligent and so proactive and assertive with finally getting this done. I, I, my first draft was actually longer, believe it or not. I have all of these word docs on my computer with like edits and, and things in the title. And so you know, they basically were like, you need to cut it down a little bit. So I'm, I'm very wordy anyway, but there's like, you know, the extended director's cut that I could do if I wanted to. <laughs> Feel How free to slide that into my DMs if you got the PDF of that. I will read all of it. Hey, you know, I, I, I am a self-styled uh, uh, Durrani uh, Wikipedia walking expert in my own mind, in my uh, legend in my own mind. I learned stuff from this book and that, you know, to, uh, the ego is really pouring out of me now. But the <laughs> fact that I learned something from this book is amazing. Me too. Me too. Well, before we get into diving into the heft of this book, for our listeners who may not be aware of what the 33 and a third series is, why don't you in a, a give the elevator pitch for what that is, Annie? So these are basically books about one album. Um, 33 and a third is what you, the speed you play on most vinyl records, full length vinyl records at. And so it's basically a deep dive into individual records. And so there have been 33 and a thirds on records by David Bowie, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Radiohead. So it's pretty much every great esteemed band you can think of has had a 33 and a third. And so now we can add Duran Duran to that list. It's about damn time since 2007. Okay. So how many times did you go back to the drawing board trying to convince the 33 and a third powers that be that Duran Duran deserved to be in that esteemed company? So I think it was three times total I pitched. Um, I pitched them in 2007. I pitched them in 2009. What they used to do was pitch, was say, you know, yeah, we had our first round and here's, you know, the first cut. And I know I made the first cut once and I got rejected. And so basically they had an open call for pitches in 2018. And I, I wasn't necessarily going to pitch again, but I was talking with some friends and I'm like, you know what? I need to just try again. Like I would, I would re really regret if, if I just didn't try again. So I sat down, there was a very lengthy proposal. I just kind of hunkered down and took my old proposal and updated it and, you know, sent it in because you never know. And I got an email in early 2019 that I got it. I, I, I like started shaking. I was just Aww. like, oh my God, you know, like I, I was so overwhelmed because I, I was just so excited. Do you know what it was? Have you, have, do you have any, has anyone told you, do you have any hunch about what it was in that proposal that made the third time the charm where they looked at it and went, She's got a point. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think part of it is that probably I wrote a better proposal this time. I think because I had a decade more of experience and I, I kind of knew a little better how to frame things. Um, I think Duran Duran is just a lot more respected now, you know, and I think originally when I pitched it, they were really starting to get, uh, you know, there was kind of the tide was sort of starting to turn because the killers had been talking them up and my chemical romance and people like that. But I think finally an, an extra decade helped. And now everyone is like, man, Duran Duran is so cool. So mm -hmm. I think everyone is finally coming to see what all of us have known for decades. I, I see what you did there, decade. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but there, there are several albums by Duran Duran. There's at least, mm -hmm. at least three, I would say that could have gotten the 33 and a third treatment. So what is it about as, as an expert who wrote this book, what is it about Rio that makes it so worthy of this? That's such a big question. I mean, you know, first off, music. I mean, I think when you when you look at, you know, Duran Duran have made many, many wonderful records. This record, though, is something special. I mean, it's our second record. The, the music is very cohesive. The songwriting is, they were kind of at the top of their songwriting game. Every song on the record could have been a single, which you can't necessarily 
you know, say about, you know, every record released around this time. So you have that aspect. The artwork, you can't deny that basically just as a piece of art. I mean, you, you pick up the vinyl and yeah, see right there. You could hang it on the wall. I mean, it's it's a piece of visual art as well, Patrick Nagel. Um, okay. And this was when, you know, they they really, they, their videos for this album. I mean, MTV finally was starting to kind of, you know, take flight and Duran Duran was a big part of that. And so the videos they made for this record too really helped propel them. And, you know, you look at, they had, and this was their, their first big hits too. They had their biggest, you know, American hit and it all, it all kind of started from there. You put it on a level, as as you say in the intro, you put it in the same sentence with Thriller, Like a Virgin mm -hmm. by Madonna, Purple Rain. You put it on that plane. I do. And, and you know, and I was like, this is, this is kind of bold that I'm saying this. But I, I agree with this. I mean, when you look at those records, those are all records that, A, are great front to back. They're the records that when people talk about being, you know, pieces of art that really kind of move the cultural needle all of those did that. Duran Duran's one did that. You know, I mean, it, it was a really special record for a lot of people. I, I'm going to ramp it up a notch. You think of records that define a decade, okay? And Duran Duran, I know don't, they do not like to be pegged as an 80s band. Mm -hmm. right? So they are still an ongoing concern. They're still making great music. Mm -hmm. But the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, is an album of the 60s. Uh, you've got... Led Zeppelin Four is an album of the '70s. Rio is an album of the '80s. It defines the '80s. Mm -hmm. That's so absolutely bold. does, mm -hmm. and, I, and I love that. I think you're completely right. I mean, because you know, when people talk about what the '80s look like, what do they show? They show Simon Le Bon on the yacht in from yeah. the Rio video. You know, they're sailing. You know, that is like the iconic image of the decade, and it is. It just it sums up the decade so well in all in just that one album. Well, John, since you've, you know, so boldly and uh, you've put your ego aside a little bit and said that there were things in this book that you did not learn. I'm very curious, since I know you're such an expert, what were the things that stood out yeah. to you when you were reading it where you're like, holy cow, I never knew that? It, it wasn't so much a, a, a fact that jumped out like, oh, I did not know that fact, but but things, thematic things like that I thought about, I guess, in the background, but I never really ruminated on in the difference in the lyrics between the debut album in Rio, the debut albums, Simon's poetry, stream of consciousness, you know, Georgie Davis is coming out. What? Huh? Whereas Rio is last chance on the stairways about a guy trying to pick up a girl at a party. It, it, there was a major lyrical shift. I think the only traditional, if you're talking from the first record to the second record, Simon Le Bon lyric is probably new religion where you're like, okay, what's mm. this about? Uh, but I love it. Uh, so that occurred to me while reading the book is that huge shift. And I think that really helped them commercially. I would agree with that. You know, and I think what they were, uh, what they were doing, and this is, I think, I'm not sure if this made the book, but when I interviewed John Taylor, he said, you know, Rio was really them kind of responding to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think you really hear that in the lyrics, you know, they had been traveling. And so you kind of have this and they were going to clubs and they were going to parties and they were having all these new experiences and that all really poured into the lyrics. You know, I mean, Rio, you know, Simon saw a, a girl and, you know, he kind of riffed on that and it made into we're traveling, we're seeing America, you know, it's just the grand metaphor. Um, I, I completely agree with that. Like, it's just very, it's very, there's a lot more personal. And, and I think there, there is a lot more, there's a lot more emotion poured into it. You know, he really had his heart on his sleeve, I think, you know, and I think that really, and you see why it related, you know, by fans really related to it, but I would completely agree with that in terms of the step forward. Much more relatable than you know, 
know what passes for a love song on the first record, Careless Memories. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that was a big shift for the band and for Simon in particular. So that is one thing that really struck me from, when reading this. I, I have a question I want to ask you, Annie. Um, oh. And I've mentioned this before. I mentioned this in a couple articles I wrote that. OK, so a long time ago, you were mentioning how there were bands like The Killers and stuff that like really love and have name checked Duran Duran. When Interpol's very first record came out, I got into a conversation, I don't know how, about Duran Duran with their drummer, Sam. Mm -hmm. And it's it touches on what you were just talking about, John. He had a theory that men, or at least straight men, that men preferred the second, or sorry, that men preferred the first Duran Duran record. That was their favorite Duran Duran record. And that women tended to prefer Rio, which is more romantic, as you said, you know, more, a little more flowery and a little more glamorous sounding. The first record's a little more like cold and synthy. So, and I've tested this theory frequently throughout my life. And it, it you know, there are exceptions, but he was kind of right. I don't, I do know a lot of guys who really like prefer the first record, but of course you prefer the first record. I do. We had this conversation with Sam Hollander too. Yeah. And, okay. And Sam was the exception. He, he preferred Rio and I'm very much a first record kind of guy. I, I like the the new romanticism of it and the cold synths and everything. But the Cold I, War imagery of, you yeah, know, I, even the Planet Earth video and song. But right. I do, of course, you know, the not only did you mention, Annie, that Rio was the album that, you know, had their first really big hits, especially here in America. But it is the album that turned them into a term I don't like to use. But, you know, they turned them into a boy band or teen idols, even though they were not that it, it put them in that lane where they became pinups and became, that's when all the girls started really crushing on them. So do you, how do you think about this theory that like Rio was a more like female friendly album? That's a really interesting theory. And I, 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 I almost agree with that. I mean, I, it's hard for me because I like all the records, you know, and so I really like the first record too. But I think that's a really interesting point. I think because A, it was so personal and because their visual aesthetics started becoming so important with Rio too. You know, mm -hmm. like the first record, it was, they were, it was a little bit more mysterious. I mean, when you see like the Planet Earth video, like that's, you know, that's so abstract and artistic and but when you see rio like they were definitely like this is cinematic we're like movie stars you know mm -hmm. they were definitely playing up the whole interplay between you know we have we're we're cute and we're pretty and we're going to you know we're going to amplify that basically and so and i think because of the lyrics they are so introspective you know it was something they really provided um they were it was they were dreamy lyrics you know they were kind of daydreaming too and i think that's you know when you're a kid in the suburbs and you know a you're an adolescent and you're like mooning after people who never don't crush back on you you know there's a lot to that you know i think that's it's it's like i said it was open hearted i think that is that is pretty good I Let do me do a little bit of myth busting on the boy band thing. Okay. For Rio. It's minor. It's tiny, okay. but it, it occurred to me and I, I do want to mention it. You know, the videos, obviously they're pinups. They're, they're in star hits. They're in smash hits. You know, they're in 16 magazine. I get it. But if you look at the album itself, the inner sleeve, and I didn't really notice this until a, a, a couple of years ago, that one picture of them that's <laughs> the inner sleeve is blurry. And far it's, away. Far away. It's almost like, okay, we know we're a boy band, but we don't want to 
plaster ourselves all over with, you know, glamour shots. And I never, that never really occurred to me. And I, it's gotta be intentional. I would hope. Why would I mean, they they're hope? not on the album cover. I mean, they've been certainly on the first record, the third record and other records they are. And then the record that actually made them a quote unquote boy band does not have them on the cover. And what's interesting about that photo, and I tell this story in the book, and so they were working with a photographer named Andy Earl. And so he, who was kind of artsy, like he went, you know, he basically, he used this effect where he basically, and it, he, I, I, it's, it's very complicated. I, I put it out in the book, but whatever it is, he kicked the camera at the very end to kind of get that fizzy effect. That's a little bit blurry to kind of show motion and excitement because they were on top of a building in London there, you know, and it was freezing cold. And so that was how they got that. And so that's wow. kind of their artsy versus like boy band dichotomy. Like there was definitely a tension on this record, especially like the second half is kind of moody and artsier. The first half is like, you know, the pop dance floor bangers. And so that kind of, you know, tension that they were going for, you know, I think was really inherent in that picture too. And let that be a lesson to you kids, how tough things were then. <laughs> Just a Photoshop filter these days would have handled it. <laughs> he had manual cameras. It was very time intensive. He had a, key, a tripod. Yeah. Let's talk more about the artwork. You already mentioned it a little bit, Annie, but all, of course, you know, Patrick Nagel became so associated. This artwork became so associated with Duran Duran that now people look at other of the many, many paintings and illustrations that Patrick Nagel did, and they will say Duran Duran when it's not even mm -hmm. from Rio. Like they'll look at, something in the, you know, window of a hairdressing salon and be like, oh, Duran Duran, you know, he became so associated. But we also need to talk about the genius that is Malcolm Garrett. Yes. Who, of course, also did a lot of, the, you know, the artwork for one of my other favorite bands, the Buzzcocks. I think he did a, a lot of Human League artwork. He he was all over the 80s. Ballet, altered images. I used to scour for assorted images uh, to credits. He is, I mean, and I was so happy that he agreed to talk to me for this book because he is a total genius. He is just so smart and deliberate about the way that he thinks about artwork. And that really dovetails great with Duran Duran, who is very deliberate about their sound and everything. And so, so Malcolm started working with the band on the first record. And so he continued with Rio. So for this cover, he was basically given this Patrick Nagel painting. It was like, okay, you got to, you know, put this cover together. And what he basically said was, you know, I could have just gone the easy route and done a few things and said, oh, let's let it be done. But he was like, no, I need to make this. I need to elevate it. And so how he envisioned the album cover was like, like a cigar box. And so he, cause he was like Rio and it was like, you know, fancy. And so, but using the font, when you see the little like design on the side at the very bottom there, he said some of the early pressings had an actual sticker. So you had to slice through it to get in like you would have to a cigar box. Wow. So, I mean, so, I mean, you know, the pet, this painting in general, you know, and Nick Rhodes is like, you know, we saw that we're like, yeah, absolutely. I think Patrick had two choices and they were like, this is the album cover. And then Malcolm just elevated it to something just thematically so smart and so subtle, you know, and then I had never thought about that. And he's telling me the story. It's like, that's perfect. You know, there's so many different layers to the artwork and that also, you know, there's so many different layers to the album too. And they almost used a different Patrick Nagel painting because I actually, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine gifted me a framed Nagel painting and it's of a, another, you know, Nagel girl um, reclining with kind of a flower in her hair. And I believe they ended up using it for the My Own Way single artwork. But that was an image that was considered a different Patrick Nagel painting. Do you have any um, insight into, I guess they at least had two to choose from why they chose this one? I think that they just looked at it and said, this is it. Like this is, you know, I think, I think it was Nick Rhodes who said it was our smiling Rio girl. Cherry and ice cream smile. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and it fits. I mean, you, you know, we have the line cherry ice cream smile, you know, it's, as I said, it's kind of mysterious. She's kind of enigmatic. You're kind of like, what is, why is, what is she smiling about? And you don't know. And that really just kind of fits kind of the record too. It really, it's so inviting. When you see that, you're like, I want to listen to that record. And what's so funny about with this book is I think because, you know, luckily it's on the cover of the book, which is the greatest thing in terms of, you know, everyone, they're treating it like a record. Like people are really excited to have the physical copy. Like, like it's people are like, am I going to get a first edition? Like it's like a different pressing. It just it just screams. It's just and that is so 80s, too. I mean, you think yeah. about, you know, 80s album covers. You, know, you have Springsteen and you have like Madonna and you have all the prints. And again, you have Rio. Absolutely. She was the Mona Lisa of 80s New Wave. Absolutely. I want to go back to the lyrics again for a second, because I interviewed John Taylor when the anniversary of this album came out. I guess it would have been uh, about three years ago. And we, you know, we were talking about the aspirational nature of it and how a lot, you know, obviously we could go down a whole rabbit hole about how much Duran Duran were not taken seriously at the time and how much that has been, you know, thankfully corrected. But like he talked about, you know, and Spano Ballet were like this too, you know, I Spano Ballet were working class guys, but they were selling this lifestyle of like glamour and glamorous videos and, you know, just high fashion and they were doing that in, in London. And then Duran Duran were doing that out of Birmingham. But like they got some flack at the time for, you know, in an era of Thatcher or whatever, for selling this unattainable lifestyle of, of yachts and globe trotting and, you know, designer suits or whatever. Did you speak to any of that people about like sort of that lyrical, whether it was in the lyrics or whether the artwork, the videos, that whole idea that they were selling this like dream? Well, it's, I think it was John too. When I talked to him, you know, he, he was like, all of that stuff was subconscious, you know, he, you know, it's like all of that aspirational stuff. They weren't, you know, consciously saying we're going to sell some aspiration. You know, that was <laughs> what they were living, you know, they were all still, they were hoping that would happen. And I think that's, what's the most interesting thing about this is they almost sort of manifested that success in this lifestyle. Because I mean, when they shot the, you know, the videos in Sri Lanka, they had literally just finished the record. It wasn't even out yet. You know, when they went to film the Rio video, you know, the record was just starting to take off. So when they're doing, you know, when there are those beautiful Anthony Price suits on a yacht, you know, they weren't like the successful band already. They were, you know, they had some success, but they weren't, you know, global like superstars. So mm -hmm. they really, they were sort of, you know, hey, this is kind of what we want to be. And we're going to we're going to it's kind of fake it till you make it in a way that, you know, we're going to act like this. And hey, this is going to come up. Um, but like that, the lyrics, though, too, I think, you know, I think it was John that also said, you know, we poured everything, you know, and they hadn't left. They were in Birmingham. They were suburban kids. They had barely left before going on tour in 1981. They went all over the world. And so they were pouring that excitement into Rio and into the lyrics. And so there was a lot of that aspiration as well. Let's let's talk about going into recording this because the, the first album, Planet Earth is a big hit, Careless Memories, eh, not so much, but they kind of had a flop single in between there with the original version of My Own Way. Oh yeah, and it's funny now talking to the band because they that they, the original single has those disco strings and it's a faster really one. Fast. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. and you know, and it was just I, I the band didn't like it, and I think I think when I interviewed people, they were like, oh, we were really excited, we were in New York, you know, it didn't quite work because they really tried to make that song work. I mean, they demoed it in before Rio, then the single came out, which was totally different, and then they reworked it for the record again. And yeah, they just, you know, they, 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 so, but they had, you know, songs like that. 
they had, um, you know, Rio was a song that had sort of been, you know, laying around that they were trying to work up and and things like that. Um, you know, the chauffeur had some lyrics that Simon had from his mythical notebook of, of lyrics that he brought to when he tried out for the band. So there were like, there were some things that were kind of like, you know, right, we're going to bring this, you know, that we've had laying around, we're going to kind of work up. But other songs like save a prayer you know they basically nick rhodes was like went to their rehearsal space in birmingham and just started trying out stuff and came on that sound and then andy taylor heard and came down and added things and it kind of came together hungry like the wolf same thing you know they they were in london and they were out the night before and you know maybe partied a little too much we're kind of hung over but like okay we have to go record we have demo time scheduled and hungry like the wolf came together so it was just like this incredible like you know magic that happened with some of these you know iconic songs but then some other stuff that they're like okay we're gonna work on this so it was very much like you know, the stuff that like, you know, the, the magic of pop songs, I mean, people talk about, yeah, it just came together in a few hours. And then they worked at some of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, it was a very interesting mix. Well, related to what you were saying about how like, and what John was saying about how my own way was kind of initially a failure. I think one thing that a lot of people forget that your book reminds is like, I think probably a lot of people think that Rio was an overnight success. Like it came out and everyone was like, this is great. Radio put it out and the hits just started. But like, it's very surprising to me that this was, it took months and months, maybe even a year before, at least before it broke here in the US. And that would absolutely not happen in the current climate we have. The fact that it would be a band's second album, first one is only sold kind of in the States, at least modestly, decently, but they're hardly an A-list band yet. They put out a second record. It's not an immediate smash. Like, you know, in today's day and age, Rio would not have been a hit. That's exactly it. And I think that's that was one of the most interesting things when you actually kind of when I actually kind of dug in and, you know, triangulated all the dates and see when things actually became a success is that it took a lot of work and a lot of time for the record to become a success. You know, in America, it came out in May of 82. Some radio stations played it, you know, obviously like in L.A., it got airplay on K-Rock and in Cleveland, MMS played it. So and some other stations, too, were supportive. And, you know, because Duran Duran came over then to America in the summer and they opened for Blondie and did some of their own dates. But it didn't happen. The record was basically in the lower reaches of the Billboard charts. So it took they but, but their label basically believed in them and they kept, you know, they reissued an EP, the Carnival EP that had some remixes. And then they kept trying to push it. MTV was going on, too. And there was something happening there. So there was enough momentum happening in little different places that they're like, OK, we should stick with this. We should try to do this. But you're right. It took it. Hungry Like the Wolf wasn't a hit until like spring of 83 in America, which is incredible that that they would never get that chance today. But why is that john might know with his chart expertise? I mean, it seems to me obviously, you know, history, you know, hindsight's 2020, there's revisionist history, but it seems to me bizarre that radio programmers wouldn't have heard hungry like the wolf and immediately been like, let's add that. Uh, radio was in the grips of independent promoters at that point. And it was, you know, borderline payola remove the borderline if you like <laughs> um, and you had people let's not forget what was on the charts in 1982 as much as we like to think that we're new wavy cutting edge kind of kids and we had punk rock hairdos and mohawks no it was it was journey it was van halen uh it was you know michael jackson uh, was coming up eager you had rush yeah. miller band yeah so for WMMS, the Cleveland, you know, flagship AOR station of the nation, the Buzzard 100.7, uh, to 
kind of shift from this uh what we call classic rock now but was at the at that time aor to start playing something like hungry like the wolf i was there annie uh there was an outrage there was an uproar uh you know because pretenders they got away with the pretenders because Christy was from Akron and, you know, it had a rock sound. It kind of fit. This had verbally synthesizers and a disco beat. Call it what you want. It's a disco beat. Um, and so that it took a while. It took a while to get middle America on board, which is crazy because the markets that had MTV tended to be in middle America. And you had towns like in Iowa that were split down the middle where one half of the town had MTV. The other half didn't. Mm-hmm. And the stores over here were selling out of Rio and the record stores over here had never heard of it. I kind of feel like that should be a mini series or a, a made for TV movie about how like that really became a cultural divide. The kids that had MTV yeah. and they weren't necessarily, you know, rich kids, but the kids that just by sh- um, sheer good fortune of what zip code they were in or what district they were in, they had MTV. Cause I, when I had MTV, when I was a kid, I lived in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California and I in Tarzana and Reseda, um, and we were one of the areas that had it. Also, you know, you went over two miles and there were cable carriers that did not have it. And kids would come over to my house to watch it. So, yeah, it's interesting how, uh, you know, childhoods would be so shaped by just that stroke of luck. There are top 40 hits from 81, 82 that are top 40 hits merely despite radio. Uh, <laughs> Kim Wilde, Kids in America. Yeah. Haircut on 100, Love Plus One. Those got into the top 40 based on, on MTV. airplay, you know, and, and some some radio stations that got on board in smaller markets. But, you know, Annie, MMS and G98, the top 40 station in Cleveland, they weren't coming near Haircut 100. Trust me. <laughs> and that's what's so funny is that when you actually do, I, I, I looked at a lot of vintage radio charts to kind of look at this stuff. And it was hilarious that some, well some of the things that people said about Duran Duran and you know Cleveland had this guy named Kid Leo who like loved all the new romantics and so he was basically the one that's like yeah and he had a lot of power so he was basically like yeah we're playing this but yeah in a lot of other markets they were those stations were like we don't know what to do with this band this is really weird like the, yeah the, the context of the time gets lost in yeah 1982 Songs like Charlie Dore, Pilot of the Airwaves were in the top 10. And, you know, Arthur's theme by Christopher Cross. So it's crazy when yeah. you, you know, think yeah. about what's really going on. It's kind of lost to, to history, a little bit revisionist. Well, let's go obviously back to Duran Duran because it, you know, there's no way to separate MTV from the Rio album and from the early days of Duran Duran, whether it was a calculator thing or just a stroke of being in the right place at the right time or a little bit of both. They became the poster boys for MTV. They became the like archetypal success story example of a band that broke through MTV. So we have to, and uh, you know, crazily the only Grammys they've ever won have been for videos around that time, you know, well-deserved, but obviously they deserve many other Grammys, but let's talk about the videos. Cause, um, Annie, you were talking a few minutes ago about the fact that, you know, they made these videos before they actually were like the Duran Duran we all know and love now. And I was always under the impression because they looked like a million bucks that they made these, but I mean, maybe they were big budget for the time, but these actually were not super expensive videos, despite how they looked. And uh, it's 
it is funny because yeah, they went and now the record company did give them money. And you know, and I I had, you know, no one can really agree on how much they cost. And I did say, you know, EMI, you know, the people, different people I talked to said, yeah, they made sure they supported them as the project went on. Uh, but I mean, yeah, they were on vacation in Antigua and their managers are like, yeah, we're gonna film a video, stay there. So, you know, they were like, you know, hey, guess what? We're going to rest. No, no, you guys are working. You know, Sri Lanka was, you know, I think they were there like maybe seven to 10 days. It was not a long trip. And so they they filmed there. But no, I mean, and because at that time, you know, England had a great culture of music videos, of course, thanks to Queen and Kate Bush and bands like that. And so, you know, and David Bowie, of course. Um, but, you know, music video was so new. It was kind of like you just made up, made it up as you went along. Like, let's try something. Why not? And so, you know, part of why Duran Duran was so successful is that they had Russell Mulcahy mm -hmm. along with them, who was the very same way, who would work with McCartney and Duran and, and Ultravox and Elton John it was also just like, yeah, let's just try this and see what happens. He, he did the muscle bound video by Spandau. I just want to point yes, that out. Yes, he did. Yes, he my, did. My favorite, the most bonkers Spandau. He, he had some bonkers stuff. You can totally see how Russell went on to do like Highlander and all exactly. these like fantasy things like Teen Wolf for MTV and stuff. But yeah, how many videos did they do during between their visits to Sri Lanka and Antigua? Because I'm pretty sure they might have retroactively done the Nightboat video there or something, even and though Antigua. that was from the first album. Absolutely. And that was for the video album that came out. And then I got, you know, the, Grammy the winning. Movie. Yes, exactly. The the horror movie. And I got, I have to look it up because Russell told me a good story about that, that I didn't put in the book. So I need to put that somewhere. <gasps> but yeah, they did. They did. So they did Save a Prayer and Hungry Like the Wolf and Lonely in Your Nightmare in Sri Lanka. And mm -hmm. then they did Rio and Nightboat in, in, uh, in Antigua. I think that's it, right? I got it. I got everything. Yeah. I forgot about loaning in your nightmare. Well, I definitely want to talk. I mean, it's it's mentioned in your book about so how these videos might be perceived now as being like kind of being um, colonialist, if that's the word or whatever, or maybe, you know, but I think probably the one that would maybe be considered the most problematic now would be the Hungry Like the Wolf one because of the, the jungle scene or whatever. But certainly that's not how they were perceived now. How do you feel like, you know, what are your thoughts on the videos now looking through the lens of, you know, a more woke time, I guess? I mean, when you look at them now, first off, they're still cinematically amazing. I mean, when you think about what was going on at that time, there, no one was making videos like that. Even Russell, like Russell really kind of upped the bar and he was able to because you had Simon LeBon who had a theater background. And so he was like, yeah, I'm going to be the star of the video. That's fine. You know, Nick Rose didn't have to be because Simon was there, you know. They uh, had five stars, at least yeah, four. They did. <laughs> as he put it, different people were more comfortable in front of the camera than others. Is, is and, how and, Andy it. and Roger held back a bit, but they at least yeah. had three leading men in, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, and when you do look at them now, they, they you know, Hungry Like the Wolf hasn't necessarily aged well. You're correct in that, you know, you're not going to anybody if you're a band from, a, you know, a basically a rich white country going to a company or a country that's potentially impoverished. It's not going to look good, you know, but I mean, at the time, though, and the thing is, it was at the time people went into it, they weren't necessarily, they were very respectful and reverential of everyone that was there. You know, they were very excited to be there. Uh, you know, they were very much like, you know, they were very excited to be there and they, cause it was all new to them. And I think it is, I mean, if you look at other, I put it in context with a lot of the other pop culture at that time. I mean, any like John Hughes, 16 Candles came out in 1983 too. That's way worse actually. Way, than just worse. Uncle scene. way worse, way yeah, worse. Way any worse. of them. Yeah. Revenge of the nerds. Holy cow. Yeah. Sorry and, about that. Yeah, no, and that's, 
that's exactly it, you know? And so now it doesn't age as well, but you know, at the same time, you know, you have, you do have to put it in context. I don't think anyone's going to cancel Duran Duran no. anything they did in 1983. You know, they, they went into it very earnestly. And I think because they were from England, it was a much different, um, they had a much different uh, approach, I think, to music and culture in general. You know, I mean, they very spoke earnestly about soul music and disco music and black music in ways mm -hmm. that like, you know, Americans didn't, you know, I mean, they were like, we love chic and we're very, you know, and like in America, I mean, my God, I mean, chic between the racism and homophobia in terms of, you know, that the disco so sucks bullshit. Exactly. You know, so I think they also came at it from a very different perspective too than Americans. And so I think that's also, you know, something to keep in mind too. What's your favorite video from the Rio specific oh, era? Man. I, you know, I think it is Rio because it's so, it's so funny. And I think, uh, you know, that element, I, you know, it, it's kind of tongue in cheek. And I think Russell said that, but that video just, it makes me, it's so funny. Like I, a, it's glamorous and they have all those amazing shots. Like Russell got those little details and like with the sunglasses and John Taylor reading the comic, you know, but it's just, but there's also those little humorous elements. You show off the band's personalities. Like you have the crab that's, you know, fighting and they're you know <laughs> falling off the side and you have the poor Andy <laughs> poor yeah, Andy. Exactly. you know it's and it's but like but they don't and they don't necessarily get the girl you know the girl mm -hmm. is the one in that video who's basically sneaking up on them and playing tricks on them it's kind of turning the tables a little bit so it kind of has that that glamour but it also has the humor and it really kind of it's it's like you know the Beatles the, the Beatles films you know mm -hmm. they have that kind of sense of humor at the forefront kind of they very much came from that tradition and it was the first Duran Duran video to show a sense of humor I mean we got to remember yes. that as well because everything before that was so deadly serious I kind of think girls on film had a little oh, bit yeah. of humor actually yeah the band. although I don't know if people were like paying attention to that video for the humor, obviously. Yeah. They didn't but, pick up on it. <laughs> no. But yeah. speaking of Andy, the elusive Andy who gets thrown off the boat in, yeah. in that and I believe got dysentery during the Save a Prayer video. He just like, you know, he was like the Michelle Williams of that band, like all the bad disrespect. Yeah. But you, the elusive Andy Taylor, you actually interviewed him for this book, which I was so impressed by. I was maybe actually, to be honest, a little surprised that he wanted to be interviewed yeah. for something that's so, you know, in the back, in the rear view for him now. You know, it was really funny. I, you know, it was one of those things where he had recently, he got management in the last couple of years. You know, I kind of looked up what he was up to and he's been playing with Reef. And I reached out to his management and said, hey, would he be willing to talk? And there were no issues. He was like, absolutely. And so I was, I was really, really happy. Um, he agreed to talk. And, you know, when I talked to John too, he was like, I really hope that you can talk to Andy. And so, yeah, I was really happy. And I, I, I talked to John first. He was my very first interview for this book. And so I was just thrilled that Andy wanted to talk because yeah, his presence, you know, in the early part of the band and on this record in particular is just, it's, it's, it's subtle, but he is such a, you know, he, as, as the band members said, you know, very, very, um, very, very complimentary things about his songwriting. You know, he was the veteran, you know, he was the guy who went on tour in the seventies, you know, who already was the rocker, who was basically the guy who was really the most, had the most musical training. So he was the one who kind of really helped them kind of put everything together and just really had their interesting parts. I don't know if you, oh, I'm sorry. I have to tell this story before I forget, John. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's this video. It's on YouTube. It's an incredibly rare video. It's apparently when Duran Duran were recording their first album, they were out taking a walk or something, taking a break, going to get something to eat or going whatever. And they're all dressed up like 
Duran Duran, like they're all yeah. in their flouncy outfits. And there was some group of filmmakers who were doing something about, I don't even know why, they, some documentarians, and they saw this group of guys and they were like, oh, those guys look interesting. Let's find out what they're up to. So mm -hmm. they go up to him and just say, and they're like, yeah, we're in band. We're over here recording the record. And what's interesting to me is when you see this footage and they look like babies in it, and it's such yeah. an amazing, I mean, to my knowledge, it's the first time they ever did an mm -hmm. on-camera interview. They weren't even like remotely famous yet. Andy does most of the talking in it. Yeah. Like Simon, I think, does the second amount and then the others are hanging back. But like Andy is talking, like if you didn't know anything, if uh, I assume that these documentarians who randomly start talking that assumed that Andy was the, the main guy, the band leader, the lead singer, because he really was speaking very authoritatively about the band. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. Do you think he's underrated like as a, you know, I mean, people don't think guitar when they think Duran Duran, you know, they never do. They never do, and they should. Um, you know, I mean, I think as as this record specifically shows, you know, Duran Duran are basically a rock band with keyboards, and that's no shade at all on Nick Rhodes, who is an amazing architect, an amazing synth architect. But they 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 had this balance of instruments, and you know, when you listen to Rio, and you think when when you listen to Rio for everybody's individual instruments and parts, you listen to Andy's guitar parts, and you know, you hear like New Religion when they kind of comes in, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf. It, they're all really amazing guitar parts and they really just, they add different shading and they add, you know, different, you know, a little bit of aggression and, you know, and especially when you hear live bootlegs from this era, they are such a ferocious live act in large part because of him. I mean, he, in America, when they toured and they didn't have a sax player, he was playing like the the sax solo on in Rio, you know, on the guitar. He's doing this like a really ridiculous solo. And, you know, Duran Duran doesn't necessarily have guitar solos that often. And so, but yeah, I think he's very underrated. And I think he, though, he's really getting a lot more kind of respect for what he brought to the band. I've been seeing that a lot, especially in recent years. So obviously, and totally unsurprisingly, I knew this conversation was going to go long, and it has, mm -hmm. but I'm enjoying it so much. It would mean so much to me, like a birthday or a pretty view. It would put a cherry ice cream smile on my face, Annie, if you would be obliged to come back for a part two of this conversation. Anytime you let me know I am here, I am hungry like the wolf to do that again. Thank you, Annie. Thank you so much for writing this book. The 33 and the third book on Rio is available on Amazon and wherever great books are sold. I am Lindsay Parker. I've been joined by John Hughes. Thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. <laughs>